in John chapter 17 at the end of a section that is described as a farewell discourses. Jesus in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 17 of John prays that the Father would give him the glory that he had with him before the creation. And then in verses 6 to 19, he launches into a tremendous prayer for his disciples. In verses 20 to 26, he prays for future disciples. Our Lord, in this so-called high priestly prayer, was greatly concerned not for his welfare, but for the welfare of his people. Our attention this morning, however, centers upon the prayer for the disciples in verses 6 to 19. And I want to suggest to you that the prayer revolves around three specific requests. These are found in verses 11, verse 13, and verse 17. And we're going to look at them in this order. First of all, there is the prayer or the request for supernatural protection from the world and the devil. That is what verses 6 to 11 indicates. One of the concerns that we have as parents is for the safety of our children. We are quite concerned when they are left alone at home by themselves. We give them telephones and cell phones, not for them to text their friends and go on social media, but that we may be able to check up on them and find out what they're doing and that they may be able to contact us in case of an emergency. Our Lord Jesus was greatly concerned for the safety of his disciples because of his impending departure. But here in verse 6 of John 17, before Jesus makes his first request, this request for supernatural protection, he begins by laying out the reasons that God the Father ought to hear his prayer. And you notice in verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. What our Lord is saying then is, these are those to whom he had revealed the Father. He had brought revelation from God. He had revealed the character of God to them. Moreover, the reason the Father ought to hear him, it is precisely because they are his. They belong to God. He says, they are yours. And secondly, he says, you have given them to me. And so he's saying to the Lord, these are your special people. These are your elect, those that you have separated from the masses of humanity in eternity past, that these you have predestinated unto life, you have chosen them in eternity unconditionally because of your love, they are yours. And moreover, you have given them to me. Then the Lord Jesus, in the prayer, he says, and they have kept your word. 
they have obeyed your word in verse 6. They have received the revelation that came from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not that our Lord is suggesting that these disciples are perfect or that they had obeyed the Lord completely in every area. We know that the disciples were stubborn, that they didn't get things easily, that the Lord Jesus had to repeat things and at times had to rebuke them. So we know that they were not perfect. But the sense in which he says they have obeyed your word, and the term there in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, is in the perfect tense, referring to a comprehensive obedience. It means that they had obeyed the Lord in a particular sense. And the, the, the next two verses sets out the manner in which, or the areas in which, they had obeyed the Lord. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. And they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The way in which these disciples have obeyed God, it is precisely because they have understood, they have known. And there again you have the perfect tense. They have come to a solid conclusion that Jesus Christ has come from God, that he is in fact the Messiah. I'm reminded of Peter and the allegiance that he demonstrated to Jesus when Jesus saw many who had professed faith in him who were turning aside. He told, he asked the disciples, are you also going to go away? In John chapter 6, and Peter responded on behalf of the disciples, to whom shall we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. They had committed themselves to Jesus. And here he says they had obeyed God's word precisely because they have known that he has been sent from God. They have, in fact, obeyed the message that is by receiving Jesus Christ as the Messiah and as the Savior. And so what he's saying, Lord, I have given them your word. They are yours, and you have given them to me. They are in a special relationship with you. They have received your revelation. They have obeyed your message because they have accepted me. And then he lists another reason in verse 11, why they ought to be heard or why God ought to hear him. Now I am no longer in the world. He's speaking about his imminent departure. He has not yet left, but it is as good as done. And so he's saying the reason that he wants God to hear him is not only because they belong to him, it is because he's about to leave. He's about to depart. And then in verse 11 we come to the first request, the request for supernatural protection. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them or protect them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. He refers to the Father as Holy Father. God is transcendent in his being. God is holy not merely in a moral sense, but God is holy in the sense that he's high and he's exalted. But you see not only something of the transcendence of God, he's the Holy Father. You see the intimacy because he's Father. 
And Jesus, in this very intimate address to the Father, he says, I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them through your name. Keep those whom you have given me through your name. What is meant by through your name or by your name generates some discussion. I feel that what our Lord is saying, first of all, when we think of name or the name of the Lord, the name of God refers to the character of God. That's what you find very often in the Old Testament. And so in a sense, when he says, keep them in your name, he's asking God to keep them in obedience to the revealed character of God, to keep them in allegiance to God's revealed character. But to keep them in his name also means to keep them in the power of his name. He's asking God to guard them, to give them supernatural protection. You will notice that the Lord goes on in verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. I kept them in your character, and I kept them by the power of your name. Those you gave me, I have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Our Lord says, I have kept them. I've kept them, in other words, by the power you have given me. You've kept them faithful to your character. And I've lost none. And then he singles out Judas, the son of perdition, the one destined to damnation. But it is not that Jesus lost Judas because Jesus never had him in the first place. He was a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, but from the very beginning, Jesus knew that he did not belong to him. He was one who was destined from eternity to condemnation and to hell. And it isn't that Judas was merely condemned to hell willy-nilly. We need to recognize that what Judas did in betraying the Lord Jesus Christ was exactly what he wanted to do. He did exactly what he intended to do. And God, in his sovereign wisdom, passed over him in eternity. But he was responsible for his sin. Jesus says, I have kept them. I have lost none. None of the genuine disciples that you have given me except this one, the son of perdition, Judas. And his defection, Jesus says, has been testified and witnessed to by Scripture itself. For in verse 12, he says that he has lost none except the son of perdition, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And Jesus may be referring there to Psalm 41, which refers, of course, to the one who lifts up his heel against him and a messianic prediction there of the defection of Judas. So Jesus is praying. He's praying, I'm coming to you, Father. I have kept them in your name. I've kept them faithful to you. I've kept them by your power. I deliver them to you. Lord, keep them. And there are two specific dangers in the passage from which they are to be kept. First of all, it is a danger of the world. Our Lord makes this clear. In verse 11, he says, 
Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them through your name. In verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What the Lord is asking is that God will protect them, first of all, from the hatred of the world, precisely because they do not belong to the world, because they do not share the principles and the practices of humanity organized in rebellion against God, the world hates them. In fact, in John 15, verse 19, Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, these disciples have been chosen out of the world. They do not share the principle of self-centeredness. They do not share the pursuit of self-gratification, nor do they seek the self-exaltation of the world. They are different in character from the world. They belong to God. They have been transformed. They have been changed. And the world hates them because they are different. What does the Lord plead with the Father to protect them against the danger of the world? the hatred of the world. It is precisely because of the world's pressure on the disciples may move them to compromise, may move them to seek the friendship of the world. And therefore, the Lord says, protect them. Protect them from compromising. Protect them from following the world. The second danger that faces them is a danger that comes not only from the world but from the devil. And that is what our Lord indicates. In verse 15, he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. He's asking God to protect them. But I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. The kind of protection that he seeks is not deliverance from the world or from the physical world in which they live but from the moral condition of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. You see, the second danger that they face comes not just from the world, but from the devil. The one who is the prince of this age, the ruler of this age, the one Peter describes as a roaring lion who walks about seeking whom he may devour. It is he who will tempt them to compromise with the world, to live in sin. And so Jesus says, protect them. Protect them from the world. Protect them from the evil one. Why? In verse 16, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so the first great petition by Jesus to the Father for his disciples is, Lord, I'm handing them over to you. I am delivering them into thy care. Will you not protect them? Supernatural, divine protection. But there is a secondary request that Jesus makes on behalf of his disciples. That second request now appears in verse 13. And you will notice that there is much repetition here in the prayer of the Lord Jesus. 
And th- in fact, it may seem a slight point, but I think it is profound. We can be re- repetitive in our prayers to God if our Lord Jesus Christ felt he had to go over the same ground, we can do so. God, by all means, accept our repetition. In verse 13, we see now the second request. This second request is for spiritual joy. Notice Jesus says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Our Lord again reflects upon his imminent departure. And he reports in this prayer to the Father that he has imparted these teachings to them. And so the question is, what teachings is he referring to? Well, I think it's the teachings, particularly in the farewell discourse. That section of material that begins in chapter 13, ends in verse 16, and, and then contained in this part of the prayer. It is a section, of course, in which Jesus calls them to love one another and to abide in him, where he promises them the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, these things I have given to them. These things I have spoken in the world. And the reason that I have been telling them about these things, he says, is that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Now, the question before us is, why does Jesus enters into a prayer report. In other words, why does he tell the Lord that he has been teaching them these things, that his joy may be fulfilled in them? The reason that he does that, it is because he is looking to God to fulfill his joy. The disciples could not make themselves joyful in the Lord. So Jesus, by saying, I have been teaching them these things, But my real interest is that they may have my joy in them. They may share my joy. He expects the Father to be the one to impart this spiritual joy. In fact, I think that this reasoning is on solid ground because the verb that is used fulfilled in verse 13, that they may have my joy fulfilled, is in the passive voice so that These disciples are not the actors. They are not the one fulfilling joy or bringing joy to fulfillment in themselves. They are being acted upon. It's a passive voice. They are not the actors. They are the ones being acted upon. That's the passive. Now, who is the one who fulfills the joy in them? It must be God. And so I would read this as a divine passive. He's saying, I have been teaching them these things. But my interest is that my joy may be fulfilled in them. And Father, my interest is that you may fulfill my joy in them. Now, this term joy as it is used in John 17 does not receive much circulation in the previous chapters. That is before chapter 13. But in the farewell discourses, chapters 13 to 17, we have joy occurring some seven times. And there are a few characteristics of joy that we want to ponder at least briefly. First of all, the joy that the Lord prays for to be given to the disciples is a spiritual joy. We're talking about joy as the satisfaction 
and the delight that one experiences in God. It is not the cheerful breeziness that the world associates with joy. Just because people are walking around and have a grin from ear to ear doesn't necessarily mean that they are truly happy or joyful. No, this is a spiritual joy. Unlike worldly joy, which is partial and external and is connected to favorable circumstances, in other words, worldly joy is dependent on things going well. The joy that Jesus prays for is conversely one that is complete. More specifically, it is internal and it is a joy that triumphs over circumstances. You see, it is in the very context of praying that God will keep them against the hostility of the world and against the fury of Satan that he prays, Lord, I want you to fulfill my joy in them. It is because our Lord knows that even when the believer is besieged by the world and by Satan, there is still an unconquerable joy, a joy that comes from God. You see, sorrow and joy can exist simultaneously in the one heart of the Christian. And Paul could say that while sorrowing, yet rejoicing. It's a spiritual joy because it is able to rise above our circumstances. It is not fair weather joy. It does not depend upon things to be going right in your home or right on the job. It doesn't require you to be in the best of health. In fact, you could be in the worst situation of your life. But there is a joy that will rise up because it is a joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. It is a spiritual joy. Not produced by external things, by external factors. This joy, it is not only spiritual, it is eternal. By the way, let me just point out to you that you know something of this kind of spiritual joy in the book of Acts in chapter 16. Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown in prison because they had preached customs against Roman views and thought. And when they are in prison, what are they doing? They aren't complaining about how unfairly they have been treated. They are singing hymns to the Lord. And the other prisoners around them are listening. They are mystified. How can these fellows be in stocks, been in chain, having been beaten, and yet they are here singing? You see, they have a joy of the Lord, and the Lord responded to that with a great earthquake. You know the story. But this joy, this joy for which Jesus prays, is not only a spiritual joy, it is an eternal joy. John 16 contains a valuable insight into the kind of joy for which Jesus prays. The disciples in John 16, verse 16, are puzzled by a statement from our Lord when he said to them, a little while you will, you will not see me. And a little while you will see me because I go to the Father. He's telling them that he's going to die and they're not going to see him, but then he continues he says that the world will rejoice. They will lament, but their lamentation will turn into joy at his resurrection. And so he says, therefore, 
you now have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And your joy no man will take from you. You see, our Lord in verse 13 is praying that the Father would fill them with his joy, with this spiritual joy. But this joy that the believers have is a joy that is rooted to the resurrection of Jesus. It is a monumental joy. It is a joy that no one can take from the Christian. Why? Because it is rooted in the reality of a resurrected Christ. And one of the reasons that believers can rejoice even in sorrow, it is because their joy is to be found in Christ. In other words, the joy of the believer is Jesus. And it's not only Jesus, but a resurrected and living Jesus. And because Jesus lives and continues for eternity, their joy is an eternal joy. For so long as Jesus lives, so long will the joy of the believer. But the joy for which he prays is not only spiritual and eternal, It is an obedient joy. I'm struggling here to capture the, the idea. This is not a happy description, but it is the best that I can muster. In John chapter 15, Jesus summons the disciples to abide in his love by keeping his commandments. He says, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. John 15, 10 and 11. Here, Jesus is revealing that joy is bound up with obedience, not only with the resurrection, but obedience. It is only as they remain in his love and remain in his love by keeping his commandments that they will experience the fullness of joy. So Jesus then prays. He prays that they might have supernatural protection. He prays, secondly, that they may have the spiritual joy, a joy that is eternal and that is rooted in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is one other significant request that Jesus makes for the disciples, and this time it is found in verse 17. Jesus prays, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. The third request he makes is for personal sanctification for these disciples. The term to sanctify comes from the noun hagios, which is holy. The term holy refers, or sanctify, refers to setting apart, to consecrating to specific use. And I've said, again, you pardon the re repetition. The term holy just means to set apart. A marriage is to be holy because it is set apart 
for the two people who have engaged themselves in marriage. The articles of our clothing are holy because they are set apart for our use. And a person who is holy is one who is set apart and dedicated to God's sacred use. The one who is holy then is one in whom God has definitively broken the power of sin and is also engaged in inward moral transformation, progressively causing them to die to sin and to live unto righteousness so that the, the desires of God are their desires and the things that God hates, they hate. They are set apart. They are devoted to God's sacred use. That's a holy person. And Jesus prays. He says, Father, sanctify them. Set them apart. Devote them, consecrate them to thyself and to thy service. Jesus tells us first that the means, or he tells the means by which God should sanctify them, change them in their hearts. First, he says, sanctify them by thy truth. Now, we know from Scripture that God sanctifies us by a number of means. At least in the Scriptures, we know we are sanctified by the sacrifice of Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We know that we are sanctified not only by the sacrifice of Christ, but we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of sanctification. So Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 of their horrendous past. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So the Spirit is the one who sanctifies God's people. Here, however, he says, sanctify them by thy truth. So it is not only the the cross work of Christ which sanctifies us. It is the basis of our sanctification. We're sanctified by the Spirit, but we are sanctified by the truth, the revelation of God in Scripture, and His revelation particularly in Jesus Christ. For it is as the Word of God takes hold of the heart of a believer that he begins to die to sin and to live righteously. It is as the word of God is enacted within him that he begins to conform more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. So he says, sanctify them by thy truth. If you are a Christian and you are reading the scriptures and you are meditating on the scriptures, scripture is going to begin to change you. Jesus says, sanctify them by thy truth, the truth that they have received. He tells us not only the means, they are sanctified by truth, but, they are sancti- but the purpose for, God, for which God should sanctify them. And so, you will notice in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. The purpose for which they should be sanctified is that, God, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ will send them with the gospel to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, believers are saved, you and I are saved, but we are saved to be, to to serve. We are saved by God to serve the Lord. You see, sanctification is not an end in itself. 
We are sanctified, set apart for God's special use, but we are sanctified that we might be proclaimers of his revelation, that we may proclaim Christ. And third, Jesus tells us the basis on which they are sanctified. He says in verse 19, And for this sake I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, when Jesus speaks of himself as sanctifying himself, it ought not to be perceived that Jesus was at some point sinful, but has now turned from sin, and therefore he sanctifies himself, that they may be sanctified. You need to recognize that the word, the word sanctify means to consecrate, to devote. And he just means here that I have sanctified myself, I have devoted myself to your will. And devoted to God's will is revealed particularly in his death on the cross. His, his sanctification, his devotion to God reaches its acme, its highest point in his death on the cross. And it is because he has sanctified himself by giving himself fully to the will of God, which involves the cross, that because of his work on the cross, these believers now have been set apart. So we have seen these three significant requests. The requests for supernatural protection, for spiritual joy, and for personal sanctification. But I know that the question that you must wrestle with is, so what? What do I do with this? What does this prayer have to do with me? And I want to say to you, everything. I want to suggest that this prayer is first and foremost the basis of certainty. When you look at this prayer a little bit closely, a little bit closer, you will note that this prayer gives us certainty first of Christ's love. He's about to depart, but he loves the disciples. He seeks their best. He seeks their good. He goes to his Father. He's not pleading now that he might escape death. He's saying, Lord, they are yours. Protect them. The prayer reminds us of the certainty that we have of the love of Jesus who cares for our good, who intercedes on our behalf. Moreover, there is a certainty not only of the love of Christ, but a certainty of success. You see, you and I may pray to God, and there are things for which you may pray and I may pray that God refuses to give. And when he does, it's a very good thing. But when Jesus prays, there is nothing that he asks the Father for that he does not receive. It is Jesus who said, my Father always hears me. And the reason that the Father always hears him, it is because he is the unique Son. He is the eternal Son who was in the bosom of the Father from eternity. The one who exegetes God. He is God of very God and light of very light. He's one with the Father. The Father always hears him. He's the unique Son. But not only is he the unique son, he is the beloved son. This is my beloved son, he could say, of Jesus. And moreover, he is the obedient son. My father always hears me. What it tells you, this prayer, is that there is certainty of Christ's love. There is certainty of 
success. But Jesus now represents us in heaven. And everything that he asked the Father for on our account must be given to us. Because he paid for it with his blood. I think of our Lord's word to Peter in Luke chapter 22, 31 and 32. The Lord says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked that he may have you to sift you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The word there is eclipse. I have prayed that your faith will not be covered over and eclipsed. That your, your faith will not vanish, it will not die, it will not disappear. I have prayed for you. And even though Peter stumbled, and even though he fell, he nevertheless was never lost because of the power of Christ's intercession. And you have the certainty that Jesus loves you because he represents your needs before the Father. He is not on his knees begging the Father, but he stands there and by the very wounds in his hand, he pleads for you and for me and that everything that you need for life and for godliness, you will receive. Why? Because you have one who loves you and one who succeeds in interceding for you. Oh, this, this, this prayer tells us of the certainty of the love of Christ and the success of his intercession. But this prayer secondly reveals not only certainty, but it reveals our unique identity as children of God. If, we are, if you are a believer, you're going to sense at some time some alienation in the culture in which you live. You may even feel some distance in your own families, distance from your colleagues because of your stance as a Christian. And we are very often seen as the offscoring of the world, people who do not matter. And we can have that narrative built up of, our, of who we are by the world. But here in this prayer, we see something not only of our certainty, but of our identity. Jesus begins his prayer by reminding the Father. He says, these are yours. They belong to you. And you need to know that whatever the world may think of you, you have God as your father. You are a son or a daughter of the king. And the world may despise you, but you are loved by God. You belong to him. He is your father. He has owned you. He says, I am your God, and you are my people. But not only that, not only you, do you belong to God, you are God's gift to Christ. You see, Jesus says, they are yours, and you have given them to me. Now, as believers... We recognize the reverse of this statement. We accept that, that, that Christ is God's gift to us. And what a gift he is. He is God's unspeakable gift, indescribable, ineffable gift. 
He's the greatest of gifts that God can ever give to us in giving us Jesus. But even as marvelous as this truth is that God has given us his supreme gift in Christ, it's still not complete. Because it is not only that Christ has been given to you, Christ is not only God's gift to you, you are God's gift to Christ. Now, I would hazard a guess that most of us don't think too highly of ourselves and not necessarily as gifts. We wouldn't think that we are tremendous gifts to be given to anybody. Muhammad Ali just died recently over the weekend. Had a great, a sense of his own greatness. I'm sure that he thought he was a gift to the entire world and to everybody. This is the fellow, of course, who who, who once, I'm told, said that he was so fast. Well, of course, he talked about how pretty he was, but this is a fellow who, I, I suppose, thought that he was so fast, he said that, He was so fast that if he turned off the light at the door, he could get into bed before the light in the bulb went out. He could get into bed and get under the sheet before the light went out. Uh, So he, he may have thought himself to be a great gift. We may look at ourselves and we may not have the same kind of temerity to think of ourselves in that sense. But Scripture wants us to know that God has given us to Christ as his gift. And if Jesus is God's greatest gift to us, you and I of all creation are God's greatest gift to Christ. You are a gift given to Jesus, a special gift, an irrevocable gift. You are precious in his sight. And even though you may not consider yourself to be much, even though we may consider ourselves to be cracked vases, we may see ourselves as flawed. Jesus has a way of taking broken and cracked things and putting them together and making them beautiful. And one day you, you who are a gift to Jesus, will be seen before the entire universe as a trophy of grace. Who are you? You belong to God, and you're a gift to Jesus Christ. My friends, this prayer gives us certainty of the love of Christ and of his successful intercession for us. It gives us our identity, that we belong to to God and we are gifts to Christ. But it lays out before us our priority. This is the prayer that gives us our priority. Very often, our, our major concerns in the world are with material things. We want to know about how we're going to buy food and clothing, take care of our children, how we're going to advance our careers. And when we pray, very often we pray for material things. We pray for our health. We pray for our finances. We pray for our children. And by all accounts, these are legitimate concerns. We are to pray for our needs. Jesus tells us that in the Lord's Prayer. But here in, in, in John 17, Jesus shows us 
that our priority ought to be spiritual. We must pray first and foremost for spiritual things. That the things of this world, they are temporary and they are passing. So he prayed for their spiritual good first and foremost. He prayed for divine protection, for supernatural protection. And you and I are given an example of how we are to pray. We are to go to God and we are to ask him, Lord, keep me from the world. Keep me from the corroding influence of this world and keep me from the fury and the malice of Satan. Guard me and keep me. We are to pray to God, Lord, fill me with your joy. Help me to find my true delight, not in the things that I possess, but in you. Give me a joy that is a transcendent joy, a joy that no one can take from me, a joy that will override my circumstances. Give me true, lasting, eternal joy. Give me solid joys that only the children of Zion know. You see, we must pray that God will give us this everlasting joy. And we must pray that we may be sanctified, that we may be set apart, that God will do a deep and an abiding work in cleansing us from sin and making us holy, that we may be effective servants of his in this world. Fundamentally, we are to pray as a spiritual priority for spiritual things and to pray ultimately that God's glory may be reflected in us. We are to pray first for the glory of God. We are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all other things will be added to us. Here then in the prayer of Jesus Christ is our certainty is our identity, and yes, our priority to make spiritual things our chief and foremost business for Jesus' sake. Amen.